Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. I say Nehemiah chapter 2, but we're going to actually start reading in chapter 1 just to kind of get caught up with the context. But this morning we're jumping back into our study through the book of Nehemiah. Today we're going to be looking at part one of a two-part study I've titled, Stirred for the Work. Our main text is going to be Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. But again, for context, I want us to read all of chapter 1. And so starting in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 1, we're told there, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Verse 5, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please... Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there. And bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, verse 10, these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He says, for I was the king's cupbearer. As we read in those verses just now and considered in our last study in Nehemiah where we focused on verses 4 through 11, clearly the report Nehemiah had heard from his brother Hanani and others who had come from Jerusalem about the state of the people there and the state of the walls and the gates had affected Nehemiah deeply. Nehemiah didn't know that the people who had returned from exile, from from captivity, and were living in Jerusalem again, 
were there in great distress and reproach. He didn't know the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates still a pile of ash. He didn't know about the brokenness that existed there. But now that he did, we see what he did. How hearing about the gap, the the way things were that weren't where they could be or should be, caused Nehemiah to be broken and burdened, to weep, to mourn for many days, to fast and to pray before the God of heaven. Nehemiah must have felt helpless when he first heard the report about the gap, the brokenness that existed, but that drove him to stand in the gap in prayer before the Lord on behalf of his people and the city of Jerusalem. And it's this standing in the gap in prayer that's going to lead to Nehemiah really becoming the person God will use to do something about the gap, about the brokenness. Using Nehemiah to help bring about the work of rebuilding and renewal that God desired to accomplish so that his people, the Jews, in Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem would become everything he desired them to be. And so Nehemiah prayed day and night. We examined that prayer that Nehemiah penned down during that season of prayer. We saw how he praised his God. We saw how he had this knowledge and worship of his God, his humility in his confession of his own sin and the, and the people's sin, his confidence in the past promises and work of his God, and then saw some personal petitions he made, asking for success from the Lord and, and to have mercy in the sight of the king, asking for those things because Nehemiah had come to the point in that season of prayer where he obviously had gotten greater clarity about what God wanted him to do, and he knew he needed God's help to do it. And that just all kind of helps provide the context for what we're going to see as we begin to get into chapter 2 today with that bit of information, that final bit of information from the end of chapter 1, verse 11, where Nehemiah says, for I was the king's cupbearer. And so with that in mind, let's read verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. When we were first introduced to Nehemiah and invited into that situation where his brother and others had come back from Jerusalem and and told him what was going on there, that, that situation, again, that drove him to weep and mourn and fast and pray, we were told it was the month of Kislev. And Kislev was a month in the Babylonian calendar, but that month corresponds in our modern calendar to mid-November to mid-December. So that was kind of the time frame. It's, it's winter now. This was the time if you were living on the coast that you would no longer be traveling by sea. Things would have gotten dangerous. And it was in the 20th year 
of King Artaxerxes, known historically as King Artaxerxes Longamanus. He was the son of King Xerxes I. And now we're being invited here in verse 1 into a situation that happened in the month of Nisan, and all the Nisan owners said, hey! Any Nisan owners out there? I used to own a Datsun, which is, you know, it's Nissan. So I'll say hey, but I don't own it anymore. <laughs> Just kidding. Not the same thing. Anyways, this month of Nisan, again, Babylonian calendar, but for our modern calendar, is from mid-March to mid-April. And still, we're told, in the 20th year of the king. And this lets us know that four months have now passed from what we saw in the early part of chapter 1, where Nehemiah mourned and wept. He fasted and prayed that these things were going on in Nehemiah's life while he was still needing to fulfill his day-to-day work responsibilities. You know, how often do we feel like, you know, I just, in order for me to really seek the Lord, I just need time away. And time away can be good. Retreats can be good. Days where we just get to spend a day just with the Lord and getting into His Word. and Those are, those are great, but that's not the norm for, for really very many of us, if not any of us. We have things that God has entrusted to us. We have responsibility for parents. You don't get to take a break from your kids for four months to go seek the Lord. You're still there. You're making meals. You're cleaning diapers. You got dirty diapers. You got kids to take to school. And all the things are there that are still going on. And, and we see even in Nehemiah's example here that we can be a people who who fervently and continually seek the Lord while still having normal sorts of rhythms of life happening like a job that we have to go to or a family that we're trying to take care of. Four months after he first learned about what was happening in Jerusalem, we find Nehemiah still faithfully carrying out his role as the king's cupbearer, he's taking wine, he's giving it to the king. And Nehemiah lets us know in this verse that he had never been sad in the king's presence before. And we might wonder, just first reading, like, why did Nehemiah include this piece of information? Do you want us to just know that this wasn't a normal thing? I'm really a normally a really tough guy. I'm usually really unfazed by things. I don't get sad. Other people get sad, not me. I'm, I've, I mean, I'm a, you know, I've, I've got this mental, emotional toughness. No, that, that wasn't it. One reason was because he was sad. He was brokenhearted for his people who lived in Jerusalem and for the city of Jerusalem. Four months after he first sat down weeping, he's still sad. He's still burdened. That burden hadn't left him. That burden hadn't diminished at all. And it seems he couldn't hide it any longer from the king. He had been successful for the first four months, but, but he couldn't hide it anymore. 
Another reason Nehemiah included this is because being sad in the presence of the king could be dangerous. In that day, in, the, in that Eastern culture, you were never to be unhappy around a monarch, around a king. The, the presence of the king was supposed to be enough to bring you joy, to lift your spirits. No one was to be sad in the presence of the king. It, it could be a great offense to the king, to the point where the king could have you executed. Or, especially in Nehemiah's case, with the role that he had as a cupbearer, he was the person who was tasting the king's food and drink before giving it to the king. If there was something going on in Nehemiah's face and he's making a weird face, the king could get suspicious and think, this guy is conspiring against me. Or he was poisoned. Something going on in his face, I think he's got something going on and he's going to try to kill me. The king had full trust in Nehemiah as a cupbearer that he was going to help protect the king's life. But, but still another reason Nehemiah included this was because this situation was going to be what kicked off the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. I'm not going to read that for you, but you can look at Daniel chapter 9 for yourself. But I, I want us to check out what pastor and Bible commentator David Gutzik said about this. He said, why was it so important for God to tell us the date that these things happened? First, to show that Nehemiah prayed and waited for four months with the kind of heart described previously in Nehemiah chapter 1. During those four months, Nehemiah's prayer was likely, Lord, either take this burden from my heart or show me how to be the man to answer this burden. Burden. The date is also important, he says, because it establishes the date given to restore Jerusalem and its walls. Daniel 9.25 says that exactly 173,880 days from this day, which was March 14th, 445 BC, BC, Messiah the Prince would be presented to Israel. Sir Robert Anderson, the eminent British astronomer and mathematician, makes a strong case that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy exactly to the day entering Jerusalem on April 6th, 32 AD, precisely 173,880 days from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. You remember that as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the, the donkey, the, the full occult of a donkey, that he wept and he said, if only you had known this very day. Jesus in his mind as he's doing that, he's going, I'm fulfilling something to the day and you guys are missing it. See, the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which is going to be given by King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah on this very day here in chapter 2 that we're looking at, started the prophetic timeline that led to Messiah the Prince, Jesus, again coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, just a handful of days 
before he was going to be crucified. So what God was doing here with Nehemiah and the work he was going to do through Nehemiah in Jerusalem, the things that we're going to see throughout the rest of this book, the rebuilding and renewal and restoration that's going to happen, was actually just a small part of the greater redemptive work that God was going to do that was prophetically linked to the command that was going to be given, a command that would point others to Jesus. And I just love that because when we look at this, we just think, wow, this is such a monumental thing. I mean, 92 years, the people have been back in the land again after being let go from their exile if they wanted to return. Still the walls and the gates are burned down and God's finally, there's this work, he's finally going to restore Jerusalem to its former glory so that he would get all the glory and we could think, wow, that, that, I mean, that, how could it get bigger than that? He's like, well, actually, this is kicking something off that's going to lead us prophetically to a, to a very specific point in history that Jesus would f- fulfill to the T. And, and oftentimes in our lives, we're thinking about even big things at times where God's doing something and we're like, Wow, Lord, that's awesome. Thank you for doing that. Oh, whoa, Lord, you use me in this sort of way. Or God, I'm seeing this thing that you're doing. And oftentimes there's an even greater redemptive work that God is doing behind the scenes that we can't even see. And we may not even see in our lifetime. This prophetic timeline was stuff that these people would never even get to experience firsthand. But 400 plus years later, then this thing would be, this prophecy would be fulfilled by Jesus. We think about the things that God is doing even in our time, in our lives. The legacy sometimes that's left I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, man, my, my grandparents' faith, my grandparents' prayers, that that's the reason I'm walking with the Lord today. That years later, years that have passed by, that God was working in ways unseen to bring about a greater work to bring people to Jesus. And for us to be able to trust that even in the unseen, even in the times when we're just maybe feeling like we're going through the motions, we're trying to live, the, live for the Lord, we want to be faithful to the Lord and, and, and representatives of the Lord, that God's doing something. Those things are never wasted. We might feel like it's wasted in the moment. We might not be seeing the fruit of the thing that we're plowing and tending to and planting and watering but God is doing something. And God was doing something here with Nehemiah. Again, a greater redemptive work that would point to Jesus. Nehemiah had never been sad in the king's presence before, but let's see how this continues to play out in verses 2 and 3. It says, verse 2, Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? Like that's the only that's the only other possible explanation. 
You either have, you've got to be sick. Something's going on here, right? Like he says, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Nehemiah's sadness showed outwardly on his face. Can you imagine that? Never being able to show any real emotion in front of your boss. Can't ever be, I mean, that could be it. Just a little bit sad. If I've got a little bit of a grimace, if I've got a frown, I might lose my job. We think about these things of how this whole culture and the government and how this interaction would have been. And you imagine if those things carried over into our relationship with the Lord? Don't ever come to me sad. Don't ever come to me and ruin my peace. I've got perfect peace in heaven. I'm enjoying perfect worship in heaven. I mean, don't bring your struggles and your sin and your junk and your hardship and your pain and your sorrow. Don't, no, no, no. I can't handle that. You imagine if that was, if that was the reality for us as followers of Jesus Christ, as, as citizens of the kingdom of God, that our king acted like that, and we get this contrast that, man, the, the, the things that Nehemiah experienced that God is the complete opposite way. That he's actually going, no, bring your stuff to me. Come into my presence and come with the sadness. Come with your sorrow. Come with your burdens. Come with your struggles. Come with your suffering. Come with your pain. Come with your questions and with your confusion. Come boldly with those things, to my throne of grace. Man, what a blessing to know that we can come to our King, Jesus, completely different than Nehemiah would have been able to come to his King, Artaxerxes. That our God sits on a throne of grace where he goes, I have mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. I mean, let's just think about all the times that we need help. I need help. Even when I don't know that I need help, I need God's help. There are times where I feel like I have it on my own, and I'm just, I'm even more in need of God's help. Because my pride is just setting me up for a fall. God, I need your help in that moment. I don't think I need it. But how desperate we are for the help of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, constantly. Nehemiah's sadness showed on his face. The king tuned into this. And I have to wonder, even as I read this account, as we're told in like the next verse or two, that the queen was sitting with him, that maybe it was the queen that nudged the king. You know, sometimes women are more emotionally in tune, a little bit more sensitive. We Guys can just go through the motion like, 
Oh, did you know so-and-so's dealing with it? What? Huh? I didn't. What was that? They're just like oblivious sometimes to like what's going on. Yeah, you didn't notice that they were limping? You didn't notice that they, were, that they looked sad? Like, I thought everything was cool. I don't know. You know, maybe the queen was like, something's going on with Nehemiah. You should ask him about it. Yeah, we don't know what that, you know, why specifically Nehemiah mentions that the queen was sitting with him, but maybe that's why. Nehemiah, uh, the king tunes in. He, he realizes Nehemiah is not sick, that his heart must have been full of sorrow, and he wanted to know what was going on. And Nehemiah at this point became dreadfully afraid because of the king's question. Not knowing how this was going to turn out for him, if the king would be compassionate or if he would have him killed. But instead of trying to cover up his sadness with some excuse, he tells the the king the truth and he does it respectfully. Notice Nehemiah doesn't blame his countrymen, the Jews, for what was going on in Jerusalem. He doesn't blame this pagan Gentile king for what was going on in Jerusalem either. No, he respectfully responds to the king's question by saying, may the king live forever. What's he doing? He's wishing the king a long life, but then sees that this might have been an answer to his prayers that God would let him prosper, would grant him mercy in the sight of the king, that this might be the open door that he had been praying for. So he asked the king, why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah let the king know why he was sad, a reason that even this Gentile king could sympathize with and understand. But in wisdom, Nehemiah presented this in a question to see if this was the moment the Lord was going to open the door like he'd been praying for. And this took trust on Nehemiah's part, knowing that this could go completely sideways and be the last day of his life. But thankfully, the Lord's hand was upon Nehemiah, and, was, and God was going to use this situation for his purposes. And we see this in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I pray to the God of heaven, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The the next words that came out of the king's mouth could have been completely different. He could have said, how dare you? You know? little Alice in Wonderland moment. Off with his head! Because of Nehemiah's godly humility and integrity and because of the favor and mercy God had given him with the king, it seems clear to me that these things God used, that he, he was able to gain the respect of the king. And because he had the king's respect, he had also gained the king's the king's trust, and the king's ear. Nehemiah had spent times fasting, had been praying night and day for four months, and all that praying led to this moment where God 
had clearly stirred the heart of this king to ask this question after hearing why Nehemiah was sad. And I love Nehemiah's immediate response in verse 4. He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I love that. I love Nehemiah's example of prayer throughout this book. It's, it's, a, it's powerful and powerfully convicting. Now, I don't think Nehemiah at this moment got down on his knees and started praying or, or found a window facing Jerusalem and started praying or even closed his eyes for a few minutes to pray while the king was staring at him, waiting for a response. But that this was a, a quick moment of prayer, a you know, Lord, help me, sort of prayer of, of dependency and desperation, wanting what he was about to say to the king to be directed by the God of heaven, the King of kings. You know, I don't know what your prayer life looks like, but I, feel, I, I believe that both of the examples we've seen in Nehemiah should be the same for us. I believe there's things where God's wanting to build in us an endurance in prayer, a perseverance in prayer, where, where we continue in prayer about things. That doesn't mean that we have to have three-hour prayer sessions every single day. But I don't believe the norm for us is to be the quick moments of prayer. I only pray when I'm in need of help. But that there's to be a lifestyle, a communion a fellowship that happens between us and the Lord that God wants to nourish and nurture as we seek His face. See, when that persevering in prayer, when that communion in prayer is is happening, these quick moments of prayer are not the things that we are living by. I, I, I believe that our response to things changes drastically when that communion is already in place. When that fellowship is already there. When we've been tending to our relationship with the Lord in, in, in devotional time. But, but our life looks a lot different When that first part is lacking and all we've got is, oh shoot, Lord help me. I think we find ourselves more and more finding ourselves going, Lord help me, oh no. Like we got these quick, and and we have more and more of these quick, I feel like the the quick moments of prayer become less and less when we've already been spending time with the Lord and he's already got uh, he's, he's already heard our voice. We've gained his ear. We're, we're speaking to him about the things that are on our hearts. We're, we're in that sort of place. We're communing with him constantly to where, you know what? When something comes our way, it doesn't fully derail us. It might move us in a moment. It might affect us in a deep way, but it's not going to knock us out of the game. It's not going to knock us out of the race. Because God's already been building a stability and strength and fortifying our lives as we've been communing with Him on a daily basis. You know, there's a quick way to make anyone feel condemned, and it's to speak about prayer. 
right? Because we always can feel like there's more prayer that could happen. I don't know why I'm doing this key motion as I'm talking about it. Like that guy just doesn't know what to do with his hands, right? Um, But this isn't a condemning thing. This is God just desiring as our Father to have that sort of intimacy with us, that sort of relationship with us where we talk to Him. It's part of what we do. It's who we are. And we don't just talk, we listen. We, we become silent. We wait. We we want to hear what he has to say to us, and, and not just in times of prayer, but we listen to what he says through his word because he's already spoken to us, hasn't he? Hasn't he left us his voice clearly? We don't have to wonder what he wants to say to us. Guys, talking about the long, kind of the the persevering prayer, that's not to make light of the moment quick throwing up a prayer to the Lord (laughs) in the moment sort of prayer because God honors both. He'll take both. He loves both. But would we not live off of the quick lob to heaven sort of prayer? Would we get that long run game? I'm not a football fan, but I'll try to maximize football season analogies. Let's carry that thing in prayer. Nehemiah shoots up this quick prayer and he says to the the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. I want us to understand Nehemiah was in no position to demand anything. He was just a servant of the king. And he also didn't have the freedom to just quit his job as the cupbearer and take off for Judah. That also was not a possibility for Nehemiah here. No, he needed the king's permission, and this required the king's favor. But it was in Nehemiah's heart to be sent to Judah so that he may rebuild it. And, you know, we might wonder, how did Nehemiah come to this conclusion? And why would he, a cupbearer, he's not a governing, high-ranking official, although he was going to become the governor of Judah. He was not a foreman or a construction worker. Why would he ask the king to send him to Judah to rebuild it? How and why? Well, because he had been praying continually and fervently to the God of heaven for the last four months since first hearing the, u- the news, and God used that season of prayer-filled waiting to stir Nehemiah for the work that he had for him. The stirring for the work happened in the praying and the waiting. And I just, I had to think about, I, I kind of, I kind of felt like with Nehemiah here, like, oh, I can, I'm, I'm right here with this guy. Because it reminded, of me, reminded me of when we were praying about coming up here to start the church. 
And I remember early on that it just started with like, oh, Lord, would you do something in the Bay Area? Like, Lord, over there. And I can imagine maybe for Nehemiah, maybe as he heard about it, he's like, Lord, please do a work there. Maybe that's just kind of where his prayer started. Lord, help those people. And I remember how over three years of praying about the Bay Area here, how our prayer life changed as we waited upon the Lord, as we prayed and sought the Lord, that it went from, Lord, do a work there, to, God, do you want us to move there? To then, finally, God, do you want us to plant a church there? And to think that likely the same sort of thing was happening in those four months for Nehemiah. God, would you do a work there? Would you help those people? God, do you want me to go back there? Lord, do you want me to be the one who leads the rebuilding there? To going, that is what you're doing. God, that's what you're doing. That's what you have for my life. I know I'm a cupbearer. I don't have experience in this sort of thing. But over those four months of praying and seeking the Lord and waiting upon the Lord, he didn't rush ahead. He didn't start to try to make things happen right away. He waited and he prayed and he, and he let God open the door. He let God bring that confirmation in his life and God did it. The stirring for the work happened in the praying and the waiting. And let me say this to us today, just like with Nehemiah, the stirring for the work, whatever that thing or those things are that the Lord might be calling us to happens in the praying and the waiting. So the question then is, are we giving the Lord our attention in prayer to where He can make a work, a need known to us? Are we giving him the time to stir us, to burden us, to prepare us for the thing or things he's wanting to do and wanting us to be a part of? God needed to do a work in Nehemiah before he could do a work through Nehemiah, and the same is true for us today. God does a work in us so that he could then do a work through us. Check out what we're told in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writing to the church in Philippi, he said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Notice it's God who works in us. He says both to will, that means giving us the desire, and to do, meaning he gives us the ability for his good pleasure. We're just to work out what he's already worked into us. And hopefully that brings us great encouragement but we may struggle with knowing if our will is really in line with the Lord's or not, if our desires are the right desires, if they're ones that He's given to us. Check out what we're told in Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5, and then the first part of verse 7. 
The psalmist David writing there says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He shall bring it to pass. And then the beginning of verse 7 goes on to say, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. See all those action words there? Trust, do good, dwell, feed, delight, commit, trust again, rest, wait. You know, those things don't necessarily come naturally to us. They're not easy things. It's not easy to trust in the Lord all the time. Not easy for us to commit our ways to the Lord, to rest in the Lord, to wait patiently for Him. Delight ourselves in the Lord, and He will give us the desires of our heart. When does that happen? When we are truly delighting in the Lord, making Him everything in our lives. Where He's first, He's supreme, and we're consumed with loving Him and living for Him. When we are delighting ourselves in the Lord, something happens. He gives us the desires of our hearts. Desires that have been influenced and transformed by the Lord because our desire is just for Him. Whatever He wants, His will, His glory. We also find in that place that He places new desires in us that we didn't even have before. This delighting in the Lord is connected to that first area of vision and mission we looked at last week, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything else is to flow from that place of loving God fully, delighting in Him supremely. Now, it's important for us to know, a little little spoiler here, that Nehemiah recognized that the desire to go and rebuild Jerusalem was something that God had actually put in his heart to do. We see this in verse 12 of this chapter, but look at verses 11 and 12 with me here of Nehemiah chapter 2. Verse 11, it says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. The the desire to go and rebuild Jerusalem was there in Nehemiah's heart because God had put that desire there. When did that happen? I, I believe it happened as Nehemiah sought the Lord in prayer, as he waited upon the Lord in prayer those four months before the Lord finally opened this door to have this conversation with the king. We may not like the waiting. We may grow impatient. We may not understand. We may grow tired or frustrated even in the waiting, but know that the waiting, the praying is so important and necessary in the stirring and preparing and refining work that God is doing in us as He stirs us for the work that He has for us. 
I want to encourage us this morning to trust that God is accomplishing things in us and not just in our lives personally, but also in the lives of others and and in this church in the waiting and praying. And God clearly did that with Nehemiah. What began as a burden was shaped, was refined, was given direction through prayer and fasting and then made a possibility because God had put Nehemiah in a specific position to get this opportunity, this open door to carry out what God was wanting to work out. And this led to Nehemiah being willing to leave comfort to follow God's call upon his life. You know, there are more enemies of faith than just fear. You know, because we've probably heard that. Fear is the enemy of faith. You know that comfort is also an enemy of faith? My comfort, what I'm comfortable with, keeps me from walking by faith. Keeps me from taking steps of faith. And I don't think I'm any different than any of you. I think there are things in our lives where we we stick with what's comfortable. We may hear something from the Lord and we'll, we'll choose the thing that's most comfortable to us. You know what? God in His grace, He meets us even there. But I believe more and more He's wanting to bring us out of that place of just, I just want to be comfortable. Lord, I want to do what feels, you know, more natural to me. It, it doesn't, you know, make me feel as un, uh, uneasy to where we respond in faith and obedience even when it's not the most comfortable thing for us. The comfortable thing for Nehemiah would have been stay, to stay in, in Shushan, to keep working in the citadel, to keep working for the king. He had a good situation. He had a lot of power and influence. He had a great thing going for him. Why would you give up working in the palace to go to a broken down city, to a broken down people who had so much destruction and brokenness and and heartache that was going on and go, I want to stay there. I want to go there. That's not the comfortable thing. But the comfortable thing was not the thing that God was calling Nehemiah to. He was calling him to a life of faith. And I'm not saying that God doesn't use things that we're comfortable with, that he can't use hobbies and personalities and situations that we find ourselves in, that he won't use us in that. But if we only do what's comfortable, you and I will miss out on so much that God has for us. The softness of Nehemiah's heart made it easy for God to grab his attention, to disrupt his present circumstances so he could steer Nehemiah into the things that he had for him. And we'll continue this account next week as we get in part two. The worship team come back up. As I said earlier, just just like Nehemiah, the stirring for the work. 
Because there are things that God has for each of us. It may not be this huge step of faith. It may look very normal. Someone else might not go, oh man, look at that step of faith. But for you it is. Talking to your neighbor about Jesus might not seem like the biggest step of faith, but it is a step of faith. It does require trust. It does require dependency. It does require us to get out of our comfort zone so that we can bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone else. The stirring for the work happens in the praying and the waiting. I want to give a final encouragement this morning by sharing what God spoke in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 through 31. The Lord said there, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If you're in a season of waiting, can I remind us this morning that God is working? He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's allowing. He has a plan. He's not surprised by anything. He gives power to the weak. He wants to renew strength. These things are found when waiting upon the Lord. Would we run to him this morning, even as we sang that song? Running to your arms. Run to the Lord this morning. Come boldly to his throne of grace. As he's inviting us in. Whether everything's great in our lives, whether everything just seems like it couldn't be any worse, God wants to meet us where we're at this morning. And if you don't know Jesus personally, again, that greater redemptive plan that God was bringing about, that Jesus was going to fulfill, that Jesus this morning is calling out to any who don't know him personally, that they would put their faith in him. And be saved. He died for us that we might live. But let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. So good, Lord, to be back in the book of Nehemiah. Lord, the challenges and the encouragements that are found here. Lord God, that this morning you're wanting to do something even in us, Lord. When it comes to our prayer life, Lord, when it comes to how we seek you, when it comes to how we give you access to every part of our lives, God, would we see, Lord, that you're working things in us, that you might work those things through us. God, this morning, maybe many of us, Lord, are in a, a season of waiting, Wondering, Lord, what you're going to do. Wondering what you have planned. Wondering your timing. Wondering how you're going to make something happen. 
maybe wondering, Lord, when a loved one is going to come to that place where they finally surrender to you. Maybe wondering, Lord, when that financial provision is going to come about. Lord, maybe wondering when this relationship is going to be mended. Lord, maybe wondering, Lord, when this struggle is going to end in our lives with sin or temptation. Lord God, meet your people in that place of waiting, in that place of praying. Lord God, would you draw us into your throne of grace? Remind us, Lord, that you have mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Lord God, stir us for those things that you desire. Lord, confirm those things in our lives. God, speak those things so clearly. God, help us, Lord, to not stay in that place of comfort. But, Lord, truly to walk by faith. And, Lord, if there's anybody here and they've never put their trust in you, Lord Jesus, they've never opened their heart, they've never asked you to be their Savior and Lord, to forgive them of their sins. If that's anybody this morning and you're going, that's me, and I want the salvation of Jesus, I want the forgiveness of Jesus, would you raise your hand where you're at if that's anybody here this morning? And you say, would you pray for me? If there is anybody and that's, that's you, maybe that's even someone later on that's watching or listening to this, you just open your heart to the Lord. You cry out to the Lord. You say, Jesus, would you save me, please? Forgive me, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I repent of my sin. I turn away from it right now, and I turn to you in faith. I put my trust in you, Jesus. I believe. And I confess that, Jesus, you are Lord. I believe that God raised you from the dead. Lord, would you save me? Would you redeem me? Would you seal me with your spirit? Would you cleanse me of all my unrighteousness and make me new? And Lord, by your spirit, would you help me to live for you each and every day? Just encourage you, if there's anyone that's made that decision, anyone that's prayed that prayer from their heart, the Bible says you will be saved. God, in this place this morning, as we've gathered, as we've studied your word, Lord, as we've opened our hearts to you, Lord, God, as we've sought to give you our attention and our heart's affection, Lord, as we've sang songs of praise, God, Lord, it doesn't end there. Lord, we continue, Lord, to ask you to have your way in this time, Lord, in our midst, in our hearts, God, in our lives, in our circumstances, Lord, God, please move powerfully. Lord, stir us radically. God, would we be fully on board with whatever work of rebuilding and renewal and restoration that you're desiring to accomplish and that, Lord, you might be calling us to partner with you to do and to see come about. Father, we love you. We praise you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.